Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J. Joining us now is one of the most underrated New York Mets pitchers in their 50-plus years of existence. If you are a younger Mets fan, think he would, you know, think Jacob DeGrom, all right? That's what we're talking about. He was the fourth overall pick by the New York Mets in the 1967 Major League Baseball draft. Long before the 1986 staff and Generation K and the current staff, he was part of the big three pitchers the New York Mets were built around in the 70s, along with Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman. I, I don't know if there's a better staff in Mets history than that one. He compiled 1,023 strikeouts a 3.03 earned run average as a Met. He was a three-time All-Star in the 1972 National League Rookie of the Year. It is a thrill to welcome a member of the 1973 National Champion New York Mets, John Matlack, to WLIA Sports Talk New York. Welcome, John. Thank you, sir. That was a mouthful, man. <laughs> but you know what? Before we get into the interview, I have to tell you something. It's a thrill to have you on our radio show. Even though I've interviewed you in the past because you were part of Howie Carpenter and my um, Kiner's Corner book down on the corner. This is the first time you've been on our radio show, and it brings me full circle because I have to tell you, 1972, you right fresh off a National League Rookie of the Year award, came out to Long Island to Mayfair Little League to the awards dinner banquet, and handed a 12-year-old Mark Rosemond his 1972 Major League <laughs> Mayfair Little League championship trophy. So it's pretty neat, 46 years later, that you're on the show with me. That is something. That's really pretty cool. I remember doing a lot of those things. I can't specifically say I remember giving you your trophy. Really? Come on, John. Come on. That's awesome, though. You know, a a lot of people might not know this about you, and since we're talking about it, you started out, like so many kids, playing baseball in Little League, where first you were an outfielder, but you had a tremendous growth spurt. You became a, a starting pitcher. Do you remember much about your Little League days and who saw you and said, you know, let's throw this kid on the mound. Well, I I think what happened was I became the tallest kid on the team from one year to the next. And coach took one look at me when we came into tryouts and spring practice, whatever it was. And he said, you're the biggest guy we got. You're going to be the pitcher. And that was that. And you know, he, whoever did that was a smart man because you continued to pitch through your high school and American Legion career. You began to get scouted. One game that caught the attention of many of the scouts was back in 1966 against the North Chester County Judges, which was one of the better hitting teams of the area at that point. But that July afternoon, you pitched a gem. You struck out 10. Not one guy got the ball out of the Kenilworth playground infield. You shut out the judges on four infield hits. Do you remember pitching as a teenager knowing that there were scouts in the stands. And, you know, for a young kid knowing that there's scouts watching, how did you kind of block that out to just play baseball as a teenager? I was so oblivious to what was going on in that realm and just into the competition that it wasn't until practically the end of my junior year in high school, a year in which I didn't surrender a run, uh, that I I realized that there's guys with stop watches and clipboards behind the backstop and I finally asked the coach I said what you know what are these guys doing back there and who are they and he said well they're scouts <laughs> I was like scouts for who I, I literally had no clue and then he told me you know major league teams and I said oh great well who are they looking at he said well you and the catcher and a couple of the other guys on this team 
Until that point in time, I had literally no clue. Incredible. You know, you're the second pitcher selected in 1967 draft that the Mets used their first pick in that draft, the fourth overall, to draft you just after the Red Sox took right-hander Mike Garman. It's so interesting to talk to guys, you know, that were drafted back in the day prior to the explosion of sports media, the Internet, and cell phones about draft day and how they found out and, and who made the call. How did you find out that you were drafted by the Mets? I got a call from, uh, actually it wasn't a call, but my uh, baseball coach, Charlie Perrone, uh, must have got the call because we were at a practice for graduation, uh, actually out on the football field, and he came from the field house or wherever he received the call, I'm not sure, uh, down to that graduation practice and told me. That's, that's pretty wild. That's not bad. You know, practicing for graduation, getting a call that, hey, by the way, you were just drafted by the Major League Baseball team. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah, you begin that climb up the Mets minor league ladder, and in 1969, at the age of 19, you're already at the AAA level. While the big league Miracle Mets shocked the baseball world, which is well chronicled in Brett's book, um, by winning the World Series, uh, you are appearing in 26 games, 10 of them complete games, I might add, and route to a 14-7 record, helping the Tides win the International League Championship that year. The manager of the Tides, which is very interesting to me, because this is a guy who really does not get enough credit in Mets history and might not be known by the average Met fan, but he's really the guy who nurtured the Mets pitching staff, and that's Clyde McCulloch. He, he nurtured you, Tom Seaver, Nolan Ryan, Jerry Kuzman, Tug McGraw. What did he mean to your development as a pitcher? Clyde was a, a phenomenal individual. He was tough as nails, and he, at the same time, he was soft enough that if you needed to talk to him about something, he was always there. Point, I'm way too young to drink and ball game and hire me a $10 bill and say, go have a steak, kid. <laughs> and, uh, just a, a very interesting guy. One of the things I remember specifically about him was in between innings when the catcher was changing gear, somebody might be warming up in the bullpen. He would warm up the pitcher and without a mask, without a chest protector, just a glove, and he'd sit bolt upright behind the plate. And if you didn't fire it in there, you were going to get your head handed to you and I was scared to death I was going to hit him, but he always caught it. Yeah, he's really one of those guys that really people do not know enough about. You know, and people forget that Whitey Herzog was part of the Mets organization building those great teams. July 11th, 1971. All right, now, Brett, I can't fault you for this not being in the book because it's, it's not a magical moment, but this is bizarre, okay? And, and, and I'm going to probably educate <laughs> Met fans because they really don't know about this. All right, July 11, 1971, you make your Major League debut, and it's a memorable game on many levels. It was a day before the All-Star break. It's a doubleheader. The Mets used three pitches in the first game, a 7-2 loss. Nolan Ryan didn't make it through five. Game two, Gil Hodges trying to shake things up. Manager Gil Hodges is coaching third base in this game. All right. John Matlack makes his Major League debut. He pitches a great game against the Big Red Machine. He trails 2-1 to one at the end of 7. He's a leadoff hitter. He gets pinch hit by, for Ed Cranepool, who gets on. By the end of the inning, the Mets are now winning 3-2, to two, and John is in line for a Major League win in his first Major League start ever. But the Mets, Gil Hodges, called on a guy, he, you know, a closer for the Mets, you know, not used very much. Yeah, actually, it was going to be only his fifth relief appearance in five years. 
and the guy blew the save. John, do you want to share who that guy was that cost you your first Major League win? That was my friend and teammate, Mr. Tom Seaver. I was in the shower <laughs> thinking that I had it locked up because I got none other than Seaver as a caddy to close this game out. <laughs> and I think it was Perez hit another home run. He had gotten me earlier in the day and ended up costing us the game. We lost late. Was it 5-3, to three, I believe? Yeah. That, that, now, see, had Tom Seaver gotten the save in John Matlack's first win, yeah, would've that would have been a moment. Yes, exactly. moment. Exactly. But it's like I remembered it, and I thought I remembered it, and I went back and looked at the newspaper story. I didn't remember Gill coaching third base by any means. I don't want to pat myself on the back saying, you know, I forgot what I had for breakfast yesterday, so let alone remember that Gill was on third base. But you know, I did remember that Tom Seaver blew the save. and I can only imagine what you're thinking. The next season, you are now a key member of the pitching staff. You finished the season with a 15-10 and 10 record, second on the team in wins behind Tom Seaver, but you also had the best ERA in the Mets staff, and your 2.32 was the fourth best in the National League. That season, you win Rookie of the Year. What did that award mean to you, the confidence, and, and you know, what it meant as a pitcher on that staff to have the lowest ERA as well? Well, the, the lowest ERA was not necessarily something I was aware of. I guess if you looked at the stats, it would certainly show that that's you know where I was. But it, it was not something that really leaped at you. What we were trying to do, what everybody was trying to do, was keep us in as many ball games as long as possible. That seemed to be the definition of, of starting pitcher, and, and that's where everybody was focusing their attention. So the rookie of the year thing i didn't even know about until late in the year again i was the oblivious rookie and uh, some sports writers started to inquire and and it was the first really that i understood that there was such a thing and that i might be in a running for it uh and it was very cool to uh, to win it um and as far as confidence i don't think it added much to the confidence it was sort of a pat on the back for a job well done my first full year but I certainly was schooled and had the foundation to be prepared to do that job. I spent three years, three full years in, uh, in AAA and a year prior to that in, in high A and, you know, sort of was able to hone my craft and build a foundation that allowed me to be prepared when I finally was given the opportunity in the big leagues. You know, it's noted in Brett's great book that 1972 also provided you with one of your most treasured pieces of memorabilia from your playing days. And it's a photo where you're being congratulated by Willie Mays after a win in 1972. Why is that? I mean, I have to imagine you have, like, jerseys. Uh, yeah, listen, you have a Rookie of the Year award sitting at home as well. Why is that photo of you and Willie Mays considered one of your favorite moments? And what was it like being able to play with, at that time, maybe the biggest icon of the game? Well, you just said it. He's one of the biggest icons in the game, period, ever. And he was a teammate, and I've got a picture of him shaking my hand saying congratulations after winning the ball game, and that to me was really pretty special. Uh, Willie was a, a, a dynamite player. I caught him at the tail end as a, a giant, pitching against him a little bit. I think it was only a few times, but I did face him, and then he becomes a teammate. Um, and even at the end of his career, the instincts that he had uh, were still just as sharp as ever, and there was a lot that can be learned from somebody like that. And I just was tickled to have him as a teammate, and that association was something I'll never forget. 
another team that's well chronicled in the book is 1973, you gotta believe Mets. And I was, I was bummed because I actually I'm sitting here wearing my Kiner's Corner shirt, but I also had one of those you gotta believe buttons and I couldn't find it today. I wanted to wear it. But you know, over the years I've had a lot of guys from that 73 Met team here. I've spoken to a lot of the guys at Met Fantasy Camp about that 73 team. And it's so funny because there's so many different versions of how that became the rallying cry, how Tug started that. What's your version of the, the beginning, the genesis of you know, Tug's rallying cry, you got to believe? I don't know that I have uh, an absolute take on it. My <laughs> recollection is it, it, it came out of a meeting that uh, M. Donald Grant held with the club, uh, sort of a, a pep talk, if you will, and toward the end of it, or maybe at the very end of it, um, to get things pepped up, Tug jumped up and yelled, you got to believe. And that broke up the meeting and things, you know, we went on to play a ball game. He went back upstairs, but Tug stayed with it every time something would happen or we needed something to happen. Um, or he would, you know, end up finishing a ball game. He's yelling, you got to believe, pounding his glove on his leg and, you know, as he's coming off the field. So it's something that just sort of stuck. That's one of, you know, I, at that point I'm 13 years old. I know playing on the, the ball yard or just imitating, you know, pounding your glove. Every kid, you know, back in 1973 was doing that for sure. During that National League Championship Series, you came through for the Mets and, and probably is your defining moment as a Met. October 7, 1973, the Mets already down one game to none in game two after Tom Seaver pitched an absolute gem. Um, you hold the big red machine to two hits, both hits whereby of all people, reserve outfielder Andy Costco. So take us back to that series, as this was way, way, way before we ever heard of the word analytics. Uh, what were the scouting reports available to you back in the day like that? And did Rube Walker have an instrumental part? Did you guys, like, game plan? I mean, we, we know what goes through a major league team now and how they have spray charts and they, they you know, the cold zones. They know everything about every team. You're facing the big red machine with these guys that are all going to Hall of Fame. How did you know, what was the game plan, and how was that game plan devised for that gem that you pitched that day? Well, you know, I hate to burst anybody's bubble, but I don't know that there was much of a game plan. We would get together prior to a series with Rube, the catchers, and the guys that were going to start the three-game series or four-game series or whatever we were playing. And the first starter in that series would sort of run through the, the roster for the opposing team and talk about what he knew about their strengths and weaknesses, and other guys would pipe in with what they knew about them. And we also sort of tried to pin down who was hot and who was not at that moment. And typically when Tom was doing it, and he was doing it this time because he was pitching the first game, it was up and in, low and away, get him out with the slider. And that was just about what he said for everybody. So it wasn't a, you know, a big, thick book that we went through that, that presented a game plan. And, and after watching him pitch and, and seeing such a, a quality job go for naught, couple of solo home runs, and I don't know, I think he had 15 strikeouts or something like that. Um, I was sort of buffaloed as to what would be the best approach, and, and I just tried to tell myself you got to go one, one pitch at a time, one out at a time, one inning at a time, and don't let anybody get on base. And that was my game plan, period. 
No, it's so interesting you say that. And again, I, I mean, I'm older. I know. I'm a dinosaur. You know, I watch the game of baseball still to this day. And it, to me, I think pitchers' instincts have been taken away. There's so much analysis going on and so much information to these guys. And, and they're micromanaged to a point where they're almost like computers that go out there and they're told what zone to pitch this guy. And it, it takes away, I think, a pitcher's natural instincts and natural competitive balance. Like, you know, sometimes they'll tell a pitcher not to throw this guy a fastball. But back in the day, could, I can't imagine anyone telling Tom Seaver not to throw his fastball against anybody. Um, you have been a pitching coach you know, fairly recently. What, what's your feeling on the way the game has evolved? Do you think it's a good thing that we have all this data and information and, and that's what players go on? No, I do not. Uh, information is a good thing if used appropriately. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, it stymies, this, this approach stymies the growth of a pitcher. They don't have to take accountability when something doesn't work because somebody's told them what to do. And they don't get the credit when something does work because somebody told them what to do. It's taken apart the competitive nature of the ball game, and it doesn't allow you to pit your skills and abilities against the hitters in a given situation and see who's the winner. I want to take my fastball against a fastball hitting guy, whoever he is, if the game's not on the line. If one run's not going to kill me, so what if he hits the ball out of the ballpark? I'll learn something from that. But in a crucial situation, now maybe the information that I know about this guy, he may chase a, a two-strike breaking ball in the dirt. Well, I'm going to work like the Dickens to get two strikes and see if I can't bounce one and get him. But if I do that to him every time up, I'm taken away from my ability to become better as a pitcher, and I'm making his weakness his strength by showing it to him all the time. Yeah, that, that to me is uh, so much has been taken out of the the pitcher's hands, and I think you're right, and, and I don't know if it's ever going to change. I, I think we're, uh, the, I think the horses are out of the barn, and I, I would like to see some guy come in old school. All it takes is one guy to come in old school and that team to win the championship, and that will be the next, you know, big thing in baseball. Yeah, yeah it'll, turn, it'll turn on something like that, there's no doubt, but it, it, to me, I think you shortchange um, pitchers in terms of what they can be by curtailing certain individuals to particular roles. We have so much specialization now, and they're all of a sudden deciding that a starting pitcher is incapable of getting somebody out the third time he faces them. Third because time through the lineup, right. <laughs> you've seen them twice, right. it, you know, it's not going to happen. And I can't tell you how many, well, I completed, what, 98, 99 games, games, something like that. Yep. Wow. You see guys three and four times, and... If you are allowed to do your thing, you're allowed to play challenge baseball a little bit. Here it is, low down the middle, see what you can do with it. And you get a sharp ground ball to short that's an out. Well, great. That's one time he hasn't seen more from me. Today's guys, they've shown the opposition everything in their arsenal before the first inning is over. Yeah. Uh, I can remember games I didn't throw a breaking ball until the fourth and fifth inning. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, we've gotten to the point where, you know, since I've been watching baseball, the complete game in today's game is, is the equivalent of how rare a no-hitter was. Because, you know, there's so few and far between. No one goes a complete game anymore. Well, even well, on, it, on top of that, no one's... No go one, ahead. Sorry to interrupt. So no one's going through the lineup two times or even right, getting far enough in games to acquire wins that are even going to get close to right. 300 wins. Right. Oh, it'll, no, it'll no, never you'll happen. never see a 300 win never winner happen. again. Right. 
Um, the interesting thing is, you know, after that, <laughs> you know, against the big red machine, now you go up against the swinging A's, which was a very good team. And I, it's almost tough to say you're equally impressive because I think you might even be more impressive in that World Series against that team. You ended up with a one and two record for the Fall Classic, but you allowed only four earned runs in 16 and two thirds innings, struck out 11 batters, walking five, finishing with a 2.16 ERA against that team. And this is this is the question that every Met fan goes back. How you know how tough was it pitching on three days rest? And you know if if there was a rain out and you got that extra day, do you think the Mets would have had an additional championship underneath their belt? I I don't really know that that would have made a whole lot of difference. I, I think the three day rest thing was something that we did. On a rare occasion during the season, it was not like the first time I'd ever experienced it, so it wasn't totally brand new. Um, over the course of the series, does it maybe whittle down your energy level a little bit? Probably does some. But what I go back to is that the first six games of that cotton-picking series, we should have won all six of those games. And somehow we managed to lose three of them. And then, to me, the A's, the true A's, showed up in Game 7 they took advantage of mistakes. They, I mean, Reggie hit a, a curveball that you probably would have hit out. It was such a hanger. <laughs> and uh, I tipped my hat to Burt because he hit a pretty good one and uh, might have been helped a little bit by the wind, but he still had to put a good swing on a, on a pretty good pitch to get it to go out to right field. And, and that pretty much was the ball game. Um, and, you know, pitching against us, we weren't able to generate much in the way of offense there. And that, to me, was the turn of it because – the true A's showed up. The battling A's that had, had been tearing everybody up all season were sort of missing the first six games, but they were there in the seventh. And of all people, Felix Mion. I mean, sir, sometimes you know things are not going to happen when, when you know, the best glove on the team, Felix Mion, you know, makes an error in that game as well. Uh, the Mets have always, for me, been built around pitching. 69, 73, 86 staffs. We're two, way, two days away from the, the trade deadline. Every single Met pitcher has been mentioned, some sort of rumors. Uh, Zach Wheeler just pitched a gem today. Uh, what, you know, before we went on air, we said it was a Tom Seaver game, a shutout and the only RBI in the game. Um, you, know, you look at the staff. I say don't touch it. And we were saying, I said, you know, they've always been built around pitching. Keep that pitching staff intact. You know, they built those arm, they've developed these arms. I say you have patience around them and build the team. I don't know how much you've seen of this staff. You know, what have your, you know, looking from the outside and watching these pitchers compete, what are your thoughts from outside and what do you think the Mets should do as a, a team with this organization? Should they trade one of these pieces for, you know, developing, you know, re, restocking their farm system or should they just say, listen, we have a staff, we have to build around it? I agree with the latter statement. I think you have a staff, you build around it. I think you develop as, as quality a defense with that staff as possible, and you allow them to learn and grow. Don't simply hand them a rope method of pitching to everybody. Give them the information and tell them the job that you want done and allow them to use the information in whatever fashion they deem appropriate that given day in an attempt to get that result. So if you want you know, I'm going to be in this ball game at the end of seven innings. Here's what I know about the opposition. Now it's your job to go take care of that. That, to me, is, is how you challenge somebody and how you go out there and compete. If you give him uh, a roadmap, let's say, 
uh, start this guy with a fastball and then throw him two sliders off the plate and then throw him the changeup or whatever it might be, if something's missing that day or the ball doesn't feel right in your hand, those pitches are not going to be near as crisp as if you're allowed to do something that you believe in and you learn three times faster by experiencing a mistake that you're responsible for rather than one you've told to throw, and you get credit so much faster, grow so much quicker, if you're allowed to make those decisions and then benefit from it. <laughs> you, know, you work your way through a tough spot and get out of the inning without allowing a run, and it's like, yes, that's how it's done, and you file that away for future reference. That's not happening today. Like I said, I really hope we get one old school guy to win it so things shift. All right, before we get one last plug in for Brett's book, you were kind enough to talk to me for Howie Carpenter and my down on the corner book about Kiner's Corner. So I want to ask you, what was your favorite Kiner's Corner moment personally? Oh, Lord. I don't know that I can remember one that I would call my favorite, but one that was probably the most off the wall was the night I pitched after the morning my son was born. Poor Ralph is trying to ask me about the game against the Cubs, and I think we won 7-2 to two or 7-3 to three or something like that. And I'm sitting there, instead of answering his questions, I'm telling him about natural childbirth and my son being born earlier that day. Uh, that, I'm glad you brought that one up because that's the one that's in the book. It would have been bad if you remembered something else that I didn't put in the book. That's great. All right, and lastly, as this is a night we were celebrating Brett's great book, uh, the miracle moments in Mets histories, the turning points in memorable games, the incredible records. What is your most memorable Mets moment personally? It doesn't even have to be a game that you were involved with. What to you during your time with the Mets is the thing that you remember most? Oh, man. I, I think probably the sequence of events the last 30, 40 days of the 73 season, just the way things fell into place, uh, a ball that was hit, yeah, we were playing Pittsburgh, I think, and it hit the corner of the fence, and it bounces back, and it's relayed in, and they throw Zisk out at the plate, and we end up winning the ball game, and that sort of was the beginning of things turning, and it didn't seem to matter what needed to happen or who was in the circumstance when it needed to happen. Whoever it was seemed to get whatever job it was done, and we just continued to win, and that was a really remarkable time where, where everybody gelled, everybody came together and, and played as a unit, and that was really sort of special. It's amazing that you bring that game up, because I remember as a 13-year-old kid listening to that game on the radio, and having to visualize Murphy, I believe, was the one that made that call of, of Zisk, Richie Zisk getting thrown out the plate, and just the way he said it hits the top of the wall, bounce, I, I remember it to this day. I mean, how Bob Murphy painted that picture of one of the most incredible plays in Met history. Unbelievable. John, thank you so much for so many great moments as a Met. Thank you for handing me that 1972 trophy. And you did tip your hand that not only didn't you remember it, but obviously you've never seen me play because you said I could have hit that curveball out of the park. I still cannot hit a curveball. It's, you know, for sure. And every Met pro in Met fantasy camp knows that, just so you know. Um, we really appreciate your time tonight. Not a problem. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so Us much. Us too. Thank John you, John. Matlock, top 10 in almost every single Mets all-time pitching category.